Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. afternoon. Welcome to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, we are recording this on um, the weekend of Saturday. We're recording this over Labor Day weekend. So you're hearing this for the first time on Sunday, September the 3rd, and you'll hear the rebroadcast on Monday, September the 4th, um, 2023. My name is Jasmine, and this week um, I'll be recording with Reese and Janet. Janet, how's it going? It's going pretty good for me. I got a great day out on the water. Perfect temperature at this point in the summer. Yeah, it was a good day. I got to be outside for a while today, too, and it was really like a perfect day to be by the water and get some sun. And it's still summer. We got like three weeks of summer left, so exactly. enjoy it while you can. <laughs> All right, so for this week, we're going to do the order a little bit different. Uh, so up first, we're going to have Reese with National News, and she'll be talking about the Jacksonville um, anti-Black shooting that took place recently. For World News, I'll be discussing the coup that just happened in Gabon. And for Local News, we'll be talking about how some Staten Islanders are choosing to welcome migrants in their community. And now here's Reese with our National News story. Hey, y'all. So this uh, story comes from CNN.com. The title of the article is Jacksonville gunmen in racially motivated attack legally brought two weapons earlier this year, Sheriff says. The authors are Eric Levinson, Sarah Smart, Noran Saleh, Isabel Rosales, and Andy Rose. So I think there were so many because this kind of was a recap of everything that happened. Um, So here's the story. The white gunman who killed three black people in a racially motivated attack at a Dollar General store in Jacksonville, Florida on Saturday legally purchased the two firearms he used in the shooting earlier this year. The gunman identified as 21-year-old Ryan Christopher Palmeter brought the handgun in April and an AR-15 style rifle in June, the sheriff said. He lived with his parents in nearby Orange Park and had no criminal arrest history, although he had been temporarily involuntarily held under the Baker Act in 2017. In this situation, there was nothing illegal about him owning the firearms. The news conference came a day after Palmer fatally shot three black people at the Dollar General store in what authorities say was an anti-black hate crime. Attorney General Merrick Garland said the Justice Department is investigating the shooting as a hate crime and an act of racially motivated violent extremism. The gunman used racial slurs, left behind a racist screed, and drew swastikas on his firearm, authorities said. He was armed with an AR-15-style rifle and a handgun and was wearing a tactical vest with blue latex gloves. 
The victims were identified as Angela Michelle Carr, age 52, Gerald Gallian, age 29, and adult Joseph A.J. Laurel, I'm sorry, Lagore Jr., who was 19. Sabrina Roser, a relative of Gallian, described him as a fun, loving young man. He left behind his four-year-old daughter. It's hurtful. I thought racism was behind us, and evidently it's not, she said on Sunday at a vigil for the victims. Lagore was an employee at the Dollar General store, the company said in the statement, adding it was sending its condolences to the family and loved ones of the two customers who were killed in this senseless violence. There is no place for hate at Dollar General or the communities we serve, the company said. Right now, we are focused on providing support, counseling, and resources to our teams and their loved ones, and we are evaluating how we can best support and stand with the greater Jacksonville community during this sad and difficult time. Prior to the shooting, the gunman had been turned away from the campus of a nearby historically Black university, Edward Waters University. There, he refused to identify himself to an on-campus security officer and was asked to leave, the university stated in a news release. The individual returned to their car and left campus without an incident. The encounter was reported to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office by the EWU security, the school said. The shooting came five years to the day of a mass shooting in downtown Jacksonville at the Madden video game tournament. The attack also coincided with the commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the Marshall Washington, the iconic civil rights demonstration that called the government to better protect the rights of black people. The attack was one of several shootings reported in the U.S. over two days, including one near a parade in Massachusetts and another one at a high school football game in Oklahoma, underscoring the everyday presence of gun violence in American life. There have been at least 470 mass shooting, shootings in the U.S. so far in 2023, according to the Gun Violence Archive which, like CNN, defines a mass shooting as one in which four or more people are wounded or killed, not including the shooter. It is almost two mass shootings for each day of the year so far. The attack in Florida is the latest in a number of shootings in recent years where a gunman has targeted Black people, including at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York last year, and a historically Black church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. I did a terrible thing that day. I shot and killed people because they were black, the Buffalo shooter said in court, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Looking back now, I can't believe I actually did it. I believed what I read online and acted out of hate. Um, so the next part of the story kind of just talks about um, the timeline of the shooting. I'm not going to read too much into that. If you want to read more on the article, you can definitely go there. Um and then I'm just going to skip down a little bit. The suspect's father called the Clay County Sheriff Office at 153, um, said the sheriff. The attack clearly targeted black people, Water said. The suspect used racial slurs and left behind writings to his parents, the media, and federal agents outlining his disgusting ideology of hate, the sheriff told reporters. Authorities also play two short video clips of the shooting. One clip shows the shooter pointing his weapon at a black Kia car outside the store. The other shows the shooter walking in the store and pointing his rifle to the right. I wanted the people to be able to see exactly what happened in this situation and just how sickening it is. 
The shooter did not appear to know the victims and is believed he acted alone, he said. This is a dark day in Jacksonville history, the sheriff said. Any loss of life is tragic, but the hate that motivated the shooter's killing spree adds a additional layer of heartbreak. Um, so there's more to the story. Uh, and just to clarify, um, you know, just to reiterate, um, Ryan Christopher Palmer was 21 years old. Um, and that is the person who shot and killed these people. Um, so this story is disheartening. First of all, how many of us go to a Dollar General, a grocery store, any common place where we need to take care of ourselves and our families. Um, but what's sticking out to me is that, you know, at least at the HBCU, the security guards did uh, try to stop him and, and uh, were successful at stopping him from entering their campus. Yeah, this was... Um... It reminded me of the shooting that happened in Buffalo at the tops on the east side because, you know, you have um, the violence that you that makes the headlines where you have someone like this man going out and shooting people or taking someone's life in a violent, aggressive way that makes the news. But then you also have other types of violence where you have lower quality food or you might not have access to decent groceries or a decent store in your neighborhood because you're in a predominantly black area. And then, you know, it adds another layer to it. Like in Buffalo, like they had to fight and wait for years to get a tops. Like that was a legit real supermarket in a, what was a food desert. And, you know, in Florida, in this neighborhood that was predominantly black and where the shooting took place in Florida, like dollar generals are known to kind of appear in like low income, disadvantaged communities um, that are mostly black. So, you know, and then this is, you know, these people with these horrible ideologies, they know where we tend to be clustered together because of like basically segregation like de facto segregation and then it's like you're a fish in a barrel or something and they just unload it's just so just feels so horrible for the victims and i'm really pissed off that desantis even showed his 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 like rat face like i He's, a, he's the main one that's encouraging this type of thinking to fester in this country, but particularly in that state. He should have been run out on a rail before he was allowed to speak anywhere about this. Yeah, um, there was a video that kind of showed him walking up to um, the area where everybody was gathering and people were booing and things of that nature. But obviously... Uh, he's been on a rampage um, with his hatred and the way he's trying to strategically take it out of schools, the, the teaching of any black history. Um, but this is one of those times where it's just like, you know, this, this shit is like alive and present. And, you know, sadly, I'm not surprised by this thing. The concept of someone going to an HBCU to attack people, though, I can say I've honestly thought about this more times than I haven't. Um, especially, you know, in the recent years with everything going on. But um, it's also one of those things where it's like, you know, it's not safe doing anything, but let alone, and, uh, you know, a lot of these HBCUs are like right in, you know, the city limits, like Howard is right downtown DC, or, you know, some of them don't have like these big uh, campuses where they are kind of closed off from other spaces. And 
you know, that, that really scares me, you know, because they know just like these neighborhood neighborhoods, the concentration of black people within these places is obviously, you know, if you want to do something massive, this is the way to do it. And, you know, it's, it's very sad. This young man was 21 years old and into his life at the end of this shooting, along with those that he killed. And it's just, you know, it's just one of those senseless acts where we, we can never really get any answers. We can never take anything back. Um, it's, just, it's just a very sad thing. And I just always want to, you know, talk about things like this, because if we don't create an awareness and keep that awareness alive, like this is not something that just happens here and there. This, you know, that number was was difficult to even say 470 mass shootings this year. And today is September 1st. And when you pointed that out, that um, the CNN article was said that big number, 470 mass shootings, and it gave the definition. I'm like, okay, now how many shootings occurred where it it didn't meet the requirement of at least four people or whatever it is? Like how many total have we had where, you know, it might be an individual who got shot? I'm sure that number is out of this world. Like it's been more mass shootings than there are days in the year. And we still have like a quarter of the year left. How many have just happened in general where maybe someone didn't die, but someone took out a gun and because they hate women or they hate black people or they hate gay people or whatever, they decide to almost take someone's life or take an individual's life. You know, like I'm very concerned about the way these things are accelerating. And I'm glad you emphasize the age of this person. I've said it before on this show, but this Pollyanna belief that like everything is like, oh, people with these beliefs are going to die out. Like you got to wake up from that because there's people that put in the work to keep these beliefs going and to foster them. So you have to be aware of that and like, don't be naive. Like you have to push hard against it. It doesn't just go away on its own because time has passed. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, as we enter this election year, you know, I, I'm sure there's going to be more of this, you know, at the at the rate of two per day um, going into this holiday weekend. We're recording this on uh, Saturday, by the time you hear this, you'll be well into the holiday weekend. I'm sorry, Friday. You'll be well into the holiday weekend. Please just be mindful. Um, watch your surroundings. Stay close to your family. Um, just because this is, you know, historically one of the weekends of the year where we see a lot of violence. We see a lot of gun violence, particularly. Um, and people are, you know, got their guards down, they party and they having a good time and then things like this. Um, can happen, you know, anywhere near you. Just just over those two days, there was one, you know, just to reiterate, at a high school football game. Like, it's it's, it's crazy at this point. There There's no place that's safe. And it's just making me, you know, just even more nervous about going anywhere where there may be a crowd, a concert. You know, um, I'm grateful that they do have metal detectors and safety measures. You know, even in some churches now, they're checking your purse for, for, before you walk in, you know, um, that type of stuff does, does make us uncomfortable, but it does keep us as safe as we can be. So uh, just be mindful, please. And, and just be aware, be aware of what's happening around you. You know, try not to get too inebriated or be too um, distracted so that you are capable of protecting yourself and the people that you're with. 
right I, I second that you know that's one of it's a shame that it has to be on you as a potential victim to be on your toes but this is the world that we live in now so prayers up for the family like just of the families of the victims like just horrible 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 way to lose someone and the people you know that work at that store that have to go back to work the next day as if you know, this didn't happen to them. They still have to keep their jobs. They still got to serve the community. So, you know, um, just just keeping them, you know, in your heart as well, because they have to go back in there and perform their job function because they still got to feed their families and do what they need to do. So um, just, you know, sending love down to Florida right now. It's just been really going through it, um, Florida. And historically, it's just not a safe place for Black people. But these last few years have just been really, really rough for them. So, just send it love to the brothers and sisters down there. And please just, you know, keep looking out for each other. Keep banding together, forming community. Do whatever you need to do to keep your voices heard because it's very necessary. And we, we hear you. We feel you. Um, there are ways that we can support as we're doing right now, you know, telling your stories. Uh, definitely we will do that um, because it's important. And for our first musical break, this is the Budos Band with Scorpion. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. to the rule on Radio Free Brooklyn and up next I'm going to talk about this week's world news story. Um, So this information comes mostly from Reuters. Uh, It's from an article titled Gabon officers declare military coup President Ali Bongo detained and it was written by Gerald Wilfred Obagomi on August the 30th when the coup happened. Uh, Towards the end, I'll read some background information from the Associated Press. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm going to read a lot of the article word for word, but some things have been um, shortened for the sake of time. 
Military officers in oil-producing Gabon said they had seized power on August 30th. They placed President Ali Bongo under house arrest and named General Brice Olegui Nguema, former head of the Presidential Guard, as the new transitional leader. The coup happened after the Central African state's election body announced Bongo had won a third term. The Gabon military officers, calling themselves the Committee of Transition and the Restoration of Institutions, said the country faced, quote, a severe institutional, political, economic, and social crisis, and that the August 26th vote was not credible. They also said they had arrested the president's son, Nouradine Bongo Valentin, and others for corruption and treason. Hundreds of people celebrated the military's intervention in the streets of the Gabonese capital, Libreville, where the United Nations, African Union, and France, while the United Nations, African Union, and France, Gabon's former colonial ruler, which has troops stationed there, condemned the coup. The military takeover in Gabon is the eighth in West and Central Africa since 2020, and the second after Niger in as many months. Military officers have also seized power in Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, and Chad, erasing democratic gains since the 1990s and raising fear among foreign powers that have strategic interests in the region. I am marching today because I am joyful. After almost 60 years, the bongos are out of power, says Jules Lebigui, a jobless 27-year-old who joined crowds in Libreville. Bongo took over in 2009 on the death of his father, Omar, who had ruled since 1967. Opponents said the family has done little to share the state's oil and mining wealth with its 2.3 million people. Violent unrest broke out after Bongo's contested 2016 election victory, and there was a foiled coup attempt in 2019. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres and the African Union condemned the events and called on the military to ensure the safety of Bongo and his family, while China and Russia said they hoped for a swift return to stability. The United States said the situation was deeply concerning. We condemn the military coup and recall our commitment to free and transparent elections, French government spokesman Olivier Véran said. The coup creates more uncertainty for France's presence in the region. France has about 350 troops in Gabon. Its forces have been kicked out of Mali and Burkina Faso after coups there in the last two years. French miner Aramet, or ERMT.PA, which has large manganese operations in Gabon, said it had halted operations. Gabon produces about 200,000 barrels of oil a day, mainly from depleting fields. International companies include France's Total Energies, or TTEF.PA, and Anglo-French producer Perenco. Concerns about the weekend election's transparency were raised by a lack of international observers, the suspicion of some foreign broadcast, and a decision to cut internet service and impose a nighttime curfew after the vote. Bongo's team rejected allegations of fraud. On Wednesday, the internet appeared to be working for the first time since the vote. 
the junta confirmed web access had been restored as well as its international broadcast but it said it would keep the curfew in place until further notice shortly before the coup announcement the election authority declared bongo the election winner with 64.27 percent of the vote and said his main challenger, Albert Ondo Osa, had secured 30.77%. Gabon has only had three presidents since becoming independent from France in 1960. Uh, and that's an aside um, from a different source. Uh, and Sam Mednick wrote in the Associated Press that um, Gabon is a member of the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries but its oil wealth is concentrated in the hands of a few and nearly 40% of Gabonese people aged 15 to 24 were out of work in 2020, according to the World Bank. Gabon's coup and the overturning of a dynastic leader such as Bongo appear to have struck a nerve across the continent that coups in more remote, volatile West Africa previously hadn't. Hours after soldiers in Gabon announced the new leader, the president of neighboring Cameroon, Paul Biya, who's been in power for 40 years, shuffled his military leadership, and Rwandan president Paul Kagame accepted the resignation, quote-unquote, of a dozen generals and more than 80 other senior military officers. Even Djibouti's Ismail Omar Gwela, in power in the tiny French former colony in the Horn of Africa since 1999, condemned the coup in Gabon and denounced the recent trend of military takeovers. Uh, so yeah, I know this. There's been so many, like as these articles mentioned, like it's it seems to be you know one coup after another happening in uh, West and Central Africa right now, um, and I know. On the one hand, you see that you have someone who's been in power as a family for so many decades, like that that doesn't sound legit or like real democracy at all. But then on the other hand, whenever you have armed men, like a military group taking over a country, like I, I kind of hesitate to talk about how great it is for the people because you know, these are people who are trained in the use of like violence to get what they want and not necessarily, um, you know, respecting people with opposing views. So it's hard to know what to think at this point. And I, I certainly don't have all of the answers. Yeah, it's kind of a complicated situation, especially when they're, they have, you know, people in power for such long periods of time. Um, so that they don't, you know, see the change that you would hope you would see in leadership that will adjust to the problems of the people. Uh, I also um, watched a couple of stories about this region and what's happening there. And, you know, it seems as though the people, some of the people prefer this as an option, you know, um, whereas, you know, if you look over in the DRC right now, there's, you know, supposedly... Uh, UN peacekeepers are terrorizing those communities. So you really just never know. You know, I think it's important for the people on the ground to have a say in what's happening in their government. Um, definitely, especially when people are in power for, you know, 10, 15 years or anything like that. Just imagine if that happened here. Um, the corruption and policies and things, you know, even with the eight-year opportunities that we have, um, you know, shifts are needed. So I'm not exactly sure 
um, if this is going to work out in their favor. I think a lot of times when we see coups in countries, it's very difficult to get everybody who is in leadership on the same page. It takes time to establish that level of trust. Um, and I would hope that they have other members of their government who, you know, are moving with the best interests of the people of this country, because that's really what it's about. It's not about what the leadership wants. It's about what the people need. Um, but I just really hope that they're able to stabilize the country in a way that's beneficial to the people that's on the ground. Because, you know, if they're in a situation where their leadership was corrupt and not doing things to serve the people, we don't want to see another, you know, round of that with, you know, some militarized sort of perception of how people are supposed to be treated. That's always the scary part, right? That they will bring that sort of military energy and nature to the streets. Um, and people will feel, you know, militarized. And, and But it seems like in this region, the people are supportive of what's, this change that's happening. So I guess we just have to wait and see. But I definitely hope that they do have a task force, at least, of, uh, you know, from the communities that are working with with the military that's taken over to address some of the issues that they've been having all this time. Yeah. And like, I can understand wanting change and you don't want the person who's been there, you know, cause I'm sure a lot of the people in the country have never, they've literally never lived under anyone that wasn't a part of this one family. Right. You know, which is, so this is new, you know, that it's anyone different, but I don't know if, I mean, the people who are living there, obviously, they know way more than I ever would about their own living conditions and the problems under Bongo and his family. Like, I understand there's a big problem with corruption there and everything, but it does make, I'm still going to be kind of worried because something can be a change and it's different and you do want a change, but what are you changing to and like, who is potentially like taking advantage of the chaos that happens like did you watch game of thrones no i didn't get into it i kept trying but i just i need to help to follow the story oh you're better off because i i binged the whole thing to catch up to be able to watch the last season live and i was so disappointed by the end but anyway when it was good like there's this character little finger that says early on where he's like chaos is a ladder and he's like a backstabbing, like evil character or whatever. And, you know, it's a fictional line. It's a line in a fictional story, but it's very true. Like when you have things that are like in confusion and people don't know what's next, that creates an opportunity for people to get into that vacuum and climb up. And, you know, someone who wants to do that isn't necessary, or the people who want to do that are not all necessarily like, people that have the best interests of everyone else at heart like they could be like they just want to replace the old guy and be able to do what he was doing but in a slightly different way so we'll see you know and I, from what i understand a lot of these military officers are trained um by western armies like by european and sometimes american armies so that can bring questions about like what are their loyalties you know when it comes to this oil money and other stuff you know like do they just want to switch places with the old regime and say things are better or are things actually going to get better but you know that we have to see we got to wait and see what happens 
Yeah, absolutely. I also, in moments like this, I always wonder, like, you know, the the people who are regional, you know, the countries that are within the region, I would hope that they would at least, you know, allow for some of those, um, you know, nationals from that country, if they felt the need, they didn't feel safe, you know, to be safe and allow them to enter their country while things are sort of stabilizing, you know, because the whole region can become unstable because of the way that they run this military. So um, the surrounding countries, I just hope that they are helpful to the, to the people from um, that region, just because sometimes if they, you know, reject them or don't allow them to travel, if they feel still need to feel safe, it could cause just like a lot more chaos within the overall experience. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would hope so too, but one of the things that the, the junta has done is like they've closed the borders so like a lot of stuff is i think it's still shut down completely which you know as much as people might be celebrating like that's some scary shit i mean you know for me it is like i don't know you can't get out you can't get in you can't get out you don't know what's gonna happen so i understand people are celebrating like i get it but i think just from my perspective especially knowing that we're dealing with a lot of division and um, people who are willing to be violent, like in our own country, like it just, it makes me think, you know, we're not as far away from something similar happening here in which I know that the people that would be popping up talking about the government is shut down or we are not recognizing the election results would not be people I would be celebrating. Like it's, it's not a light thing for something like this to happen. So I'm I'm praying for everyone's safety and you know that we don't see or hear about like rampant abuses or people being brutalized or taken advantage of like in the course of this transition cuz again like just with anything where it's like the army is coming in and taking over like that's always going to be a concern like even if the old regime had problems Absolutely I agree And for our next musical break, this is Incubus with Drive. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. How much 
listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Janet with our local news story. So I'm going to be pulling my news story from the Gothamist website, gothamist.com. The article is titled, Some Staten Islanders Offering a More Welcoming Vision of New York City to Migrants. And this article was published on September 2nd, 2023, and it was written by Brittany Kriegstein. As scenes of angry protesters, expletive-filled signs, and police barricades continue to dominate migrant-related news from Staten Island, some residents are trying to show the thousands of migrants who've crossed the borough's shores over the past year another side of it. That includes trying to make the newcomers feel welcome, or at least fed, by sharing meals, making calls, buttering rolls, and giving out pizza, according to individuals and mutual aid groups who have sprung into action to help their new neighbors. Quote, if you see starving people and you could do something, that's one thing, whether or not they should be here or what their immigrant status is, said Sebastian Sam Bongiovanni, the owner of Verde's Pizza and Pasta House in Travis. The restaurant got a lot of heat from residents last fall for delivering free pies to hungry migrants at nearby shelters. Although the backlash and the handouts affected Bongiovanni's bottom line, he said it ultimately helped the community get a handle on the issue. Quote, nobody knew what was happening. There was no system in place. And that's what Verde's pizza and pasta shouted out, he said. This community took control of the situation, and this community fixed it. While Bon Giovanni said things in Travis are more settled now, erupting protests in other neighborhoods have sparked new waves of urgency to dispel myths and foster positive interactions between Staten Island residents and the new migrants. On Wednesday night, the Staten Island Immigrants Council hosted a dinner at Yeshiva Sands in Port Richmond called, quote, Breaking Bread, Building Bonds as an opportunity for community members and newcomers to share a meal together. Nearly 100 people attended the event, which Governor Kathy Hochul's Staten Island representative, uh, Tom Scarangello, and members of the New York City Commission on Human Rights also attended. The turnout far surpassed organizers' initial predictions of 40 to 60 people, according to Abu C. Diacate, the co-chair of the Immigrants Council. Quote, seeking asylum is a fundamental human right, and it is protected by international law, Diacate said. Quote, we will continue to foster empathy and understanding, you know. That's what I believe, rather than perpetuating negativity. Staten Islanders working to help the migrants said they understand why their neighbors might be concerned about the situation. Quote, I understand why people would feel this way because if you only read the New York Post and some articles, 
It does sound inflammatory, said Celeste Tesoriero, a lawyer from, from the island who was helping several of the migrant families with their cases pro bono. Quote, the idea that people just wanted a free ride so they came here. I totally understand why that would piss people off. That would piss me off. But because I know them, I know it's not true. Tesoriero said she connected with six migrant families, two from Venezuela and four from Russia, in October 2022, when they were staying at hotels on Wild Avenue in Travis. She said many of them had made big strides since then, such as obtaining work permits and driver's licenses and making progress towards affording their own homes. Quote, they didn't come here just because they wanted a free ride. Every single one of them wants to work, and almost all of them have a permit and, at, and have at least one member of the family working. Tesoriero said it's important to dispel some of the other myths about the newcomers, that they're not being vetted or tracked by the U.S. government, or the idea that they might be criminals fleeing their home countries to continue to commit offenses in America. Quote, if you're coming out of jail, you don't have the means to get the money to travel here because it does cost money to travel here. A lot of them basically sold their homes, she said. Additionally, almost all migrants undergo a vetting and tracking process from the moment they cross the border and present their documents to Customs and Border Protection, Tesoriero said. And staying in the country is not a given while their cases proceed. They can be deported at any time if they get into trouble with the law. Tesoriero said it's also important to remember that many of the migrants are already had good jobs and useful skills back home and just need a little push to become helpful members of the Staten Island community. Quote, these people are not coming from a situation where it's possible for them to succeed. They have educations, they're smart, they're hardworking, and once they got just a little bit of help, they have flourished. Bon Giovanni said he also understands some of the residents' frustrations about the newcomers. Quote, I think the major concern is that these people seem to be jumping the line. There's a lot of our own people here that aren't getting nearly what these people are getting, he said. But once again, Verde's is not a political store. And if somebody comes to our door, we're always, always willing to help somebody. So I picked this article for this week because um, I think, you know, in a context like Staten Island, where a lot of the people may have um, shared sentiments in this case, negative sentiments towards immigrants um, might share conversations where they're fear-mongering or criticizing who the immigrants are and why they're coming. I think it's all the more powerful to see examples of people in those kinds of communities who are um, trying to change mindsets, standing up for what's right, um, and, you know, in their own way, making change in a complicated situation that's against them, it, like Staten Island can be in this uh, situation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good reminder that no place you go to is completely homogenous, like in thought and in action. Um, I, the most that I've seen has been like very anti the migrants coming. 
to Staten Island. So it's good that they had that meeting where they expected 40 or so, but they had over double that turnout um, to show some support and not for nothing like that, that particular part of the city, I think because it's majority white, sometimes people forget it, but you know, it's a lot of people who are descendant from migrants themselves, like people that were fleeing, you know, poverty and very bad things happening in their home countries. They came over here to New York and people didn't want them here either, but yet here their grandchildren and great grandchildren are. So like, you know, don't, be proud of that, but then when it's another group and it's your turn, like be unwelcoming, you know? So I'm glad to see too, that there's some people, you know, stepping up and showing some compassion. Absolutely. Um, I think the pizza seller had, you know, said it well. And I know with certain family members of my own who are, uh, have different, different political views farther to the right than my own, Um, that's what I always bring up too, is like at the very bottom line, these people are hungry. They've traveled sometimes hundreds of miles on foot to get here and they're human beings. And in the moment, it's every human being's like duty to help another human being. Um, the article seems to have, you know, all of the people quoted are, you can tell that they're they've developed a way of kind of talking to their own Staten Island community who's suspicious or even hostile to this situation where they say, I understand why you might be angry, but your notions are, you know, are wrong in a lot of factors. So, you know, (laughs) good for them for having the patience to kind of find a way to hopefully get through to some other people in their community and set the book straight um, on a number of things, like the fact that these people aren't just um, crossing the border and the government has no idea where they go or where they are now. They are still being monitored and they still are held to the same standard as everyone else here of abiding by, you know, the law. Or I'm sure like a higher standard. Well, yeah. (laughs) They have a lot less freedom to be up and about doing whatever compared to someone that has their own home to themselves, you know, that's not dependent on. Everything, literally their life can be at stake, even for minor transgressions. So, um, and, and we know that, you know, this is the narratives that something like um, the post would be giving on immigration it's always the fear-mongering tactics these people are either they're going to take your jobs or they don't want to work you know it's always incriminating them make making them seem other making them seem like they're a threat and you know if that kind of narrative has been going on for decades and decades it's hard to kind of unweave those uh narratives for the regular people Yeah, I mean, but that's also a good point that, you know, it's good that there's these are people that are highlighted in the article who are in and of the community and they're standing up and saying like, look, this is what I believe. These are my values and I'm going to stand by them and put actions with my words because that has a lot more power behind it than 
feeling like you have someone that you think is from outside of your community coming in and telling you that you're wrong. Like that's a very mm -hmm. different dynamic. So it's good that there's like local people that are there that are willing, you know, and so the guy's credit, the Bon Giovanni guy, like even if it cost him his some of his bottom line, it said he was willing to stick to his stated principles. And a lot of people yeah. don't do that, especially when they stand out and they're the only one and they get backlash, like not everyone could say the same. So good for yep. him. And the lawyer who's doing these um, pro bono cases, like that's also admirable. And, you know, she has the kind of ethos. She's, it sounds like she's of Staten Island, but also has the lawyer knowledge to kind of explain to people how this works with um, the real like facts on what happens to a person that enters at the border maybe is moved up from Texas to the north and and how they're monitored and everything so yeah. I got to disrupt that propaganda because there is a lot of just fear-mongering just junk that gets put out and people don't think it through and you never know when people could be like some of these movements and things that happen like they're not organic it's like there's people that can come in and like try to rile people up around an issue to create like the impression that everyone is against this or everyone hate but that mm -hmm. might not really be accurate exactly so. and just to take it to the bigger situation in america and even the world you know of course, having a large number of people enter a community and settling them, helping their children enter a school system where they may or may not speak the, the local language, there's always going to be an element of burden there. But we know from climate change, from war, from all different terrible catastrophes going on in the world today that people, there are diasporas happening, people are on the move, and it's in my opinion, it's every country and every county's responsibility to try to contribute to helping people. And when you put the burden on one region or everybody says no, it leads to what we see, you know, in Texas, in this country with a very callous and cruel stance on immigration and um, what we might see in Italy and Greece, in Europe about migrants coming from the Near East from the Middle East and North Africa, people get callous and they feel overburdened. And if everyone could make an agreement to say, well, we can take in this many and we can take in this many, it would alleviate the burden. And I think a lot of good can come from it. Like uh, the article said, these people want to work and they have skill sets. These are like valuable people that can be added to Staten Island and can help improve the society there. So that's just my take. <laughs> yeah, and like, I don't really, it's also like with climate change and, you know, increasing political instability, like these things are gonna happen more and more and you don't, you can't say what your life will be tomorrow. <laughs> like right, I, when, I right. used to teach, when I used to teach English, to immigrants in Queens, like one of my coworkers had an anecdote where she had a student who was from Latin America and like he had like a good job and everything back in the day or before he had to migrate. And he's like, you know, when I 
had my job and I, you know, was a professional and I would go out to the restaurant and I would see the people working and they would be chopping up vegetables and I'd be like, oh, what a stupid person. Like, he should have studied hard or whatever. And he's like, you know, and now that I'm here in this country, you know what I do for a living? I'm chopping up vegetables, you know, for people at the restaurant. And it's like, you know, things are changing rapidly and life comes at you fast. Like the president is right now considering like, privatizing water in this country like you never know when things are going to turn for you and your family and what you might be pushed to do or try to escape exactly we can't be so um arrogant to believe that we couldn't be tomorrow's um migrant or tomorrow's person in need and you know we we should you know it's the classic golden rule but you want to treat people as you might need to be treated later or you would hope to be treated later um america has had a position for a long time of kind of this this kind of thing doesn't happen to us and we applaud ourselves as if it's from our own virtue that we're not yet in a a dire situation like that but politically you know we've Politically and environmentally, we've had impacts on the world in the reasons for why people have diasporas today, be it our political involvement in Central America or our greenhouse use that's causing climate change that affects all different parts of the world. We are in some way all culpable for what's happening in other places. So that's also an impetus for why it might be so important for us to help um, other people in need. And there's also not just the present and the future, but looking back to the past, like even internally, domestically, like many people in the U.S. have had to flee like racist violence, persecution, you know, and uproot everything and start over in a new place. You know, a lot of us come from, are descended from people who had to do that in one way or another, from, from one part of the U.S. to another part or from another country to here, or had to try to run away to freedom somewhere, and you were dependent on someone having some compassion for you in those situations. And, you know, the result might be that your kids and your grandkids might be able to be in a somewhat better circumstance. So a lot of people kind of forget where they come from, theoretically, and, you know, it's a shame, but... It's so true, like you were saying, uh, you know, Staten Island, New York City, we, our entire population has a story about a, a generation that left, usually under uh, dire circumstances, or because they couldn't find enough work where they were, or a famine, or all these different reasons, we came here. And like you said, because New York City took, took our ancestors in, or maybe more recently, generations our parents our grandparents in that's why we have a home here today so it's it's really important as new yorkers always to keep that in mind when this situation comes up yeah exactly and on that note we did a show uh, thank you so much for listening and uh, we hope that you have a fun and safe uh, labor day weekend if you're doing anything to celebrate Uh, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but please stay masked up, like be safe out here. And for our last song, this is Brownstone with If You Love Me. Stay tuned for more community-based Brooklyn radio. Bye.
You 